Hello, and welcome to the Caregiver Stories podcast, where we discuss all things dementia and hopefully share some caregiver stories along the way. My name is Kimberly Scott, and in 2013, my mom was diagnosed with dementia at age 65. And after many years of feeling overwhelmed, I am just now getting comfortable with saying how overwhelming this journey can be and is. After hearing the stat on the Today Show last year, that two-thirds of women are caregivers and that there are millions of caregivers that go unpaid due to the current health care laws, I decided to start this podcast to let other caregivers know that they're not alone through their stories and sharing their stories. I want to educate those who don't know about dementia. And most importantly, I want to get people talking and having a tough conversation about the what if your loved one is diagnosed and maybe, just maybe, break the dementia cycle. So if you want to share your story, have knowledge, and want to be a guest on the Caregiver Stories podcast, please visit thatkimberly.com forward slash convo to sign up to be interviewed. And while you're there, you can also pick the platform you prefer to listen to other episodes on, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, YouTube, and now Amazon Alexa. So my guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Schulman, author of Sanctuary in the Midst of Alzheimer's, a ministry for husbands and wives caring for a spouse with dementia. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I appreciate your time. So give the listeners a little bit about your background and who you are, where you're from, and all that good stuff. Okay. Well, thank you. I was born just outside Cleveland, Ohio. Grew up in a pretty normal family with my parents and my brother. When I was in high school, my grandma moved in with us. And that was my first exposure to dementia. Wow. We'll probably come back to that. I was a very typical teenager. And so maybe other teenagers would do better than I did with a grandma who has dementia. But it was confusing for me. I I remember kind of being impatient and not really comfortable around her. But she was with us and I went off to college and got married. And I went on to seminary. And my husband then entered grad school for chemistry. So we moved around a bit and eventually settled in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I started in healthcare chaplaincy, working in the hospital setting and then transferring over into hospice. And so that's where I have made my life. Although since writing my book, I have gone very (laughs) part-time. I like to keep my foot in the door because I love hospice. But, you know, over the last 12 years ago or so, my life has really turned toward dementia caregiving. And so that's where I am now. Now I work with my book and I do trainings for communities on how to take care of yourself if you're a caregiver and find meaning and hope in the journey. Yeah. Well, when you say taking care of your, that's a great point about the caregiver side, taking care of yourself. I support group where the caregivers come with their loved one and the loved one goes into another room to play games, arts and crafts. And then the caregivers are in a separate room and they all talk and have conversation. And a lot of them feel guilty about doing anything for themselves. They feel guilty about getting time away. But you had mentioned something about caregivers passing before those loved ones with dementia because they don't take care of themselves. So 
Talk a little bit about the importance of that. Yeah, in hospice, the clinical team often talks about being on the watch out for the caregivers because the saying is caregiving can kill the caregiver. Wow. And the one that comes to mind especially was a 72-year-old gentleman who was caring for his mother down in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And by caring, he was feeding her and changing her and doing all these just amazing (laughs) caregiving responsibilities with her. And he was looking a little ragged and I said something to him once. I said, you know, are you, are you taking care of yourself? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I just have trouble sleeping. I just have a little pain in my side and he did not take care of himself Mm -hmm. and ended up being diagnosed with cancer and passed away before his mom. And we were devastated and kind of recommitted ourselves to not only really having tougher conversations with caregivers about, you know, sometimes it's not selfish to participate in self-care. And the better we take care of ourselves, the better we can provide care for other people. Yeah. It really starts with ourselves first. We're the only person we have a hundred percent responsibility for. Yeah. You know, and when we can take care of ourselves, it's amazing how much more strength and resiliency we have when yeah. we're Absolutely. Take care of yourself first so you can take care of others has been a a saying I had to learn in my 30s because I didn't do any self-care for myself. I worked all the time, but Mm, mm -hmm. when my mom was diagnosed, I was stressing myself out, figuring out how, the what, and the where, and just running myself ragged. And that was something I had to be reminded of that I needed to take a deep breath and know that I'm doing the best that I could Mm -hmm. and it's all going to work out and it's okay if it's not all done in a month or whatever that time was that I had in my Mm -hmm. head. So Mm -hmm. I definitely can relate to your statement. Talk a little bit about discovering or understanding when their loved one might have dementia. Well, you know, their typical normal things about getting older. I'm sure you may already experience not remembering where you left your (laughs) various items or walking walking into a room and not remembering why you walked in there. Yeah. But I think the best illustration that I hear, like the Alzheimer's Association thing talked about is a set of keys. If you may forget where you put your keys, that can be a normal process of aging. But if you forget what the keys are used for. Yeah. It's functions like that. I can remember a daughter saying, you know, my mom sat down to eat and she took the fork and she started combing her hair. Hmm. And at the time, you know, humor helps. And she said, just like Ariel in The Little Mermaid. (laughs) But that was an indication. And as you're familiar with numbers and not being able to balance a checkbook Mm -hmm. or doing things that are so familiar as children or as family members, we often know the the person better than anyone. And there's just a sense of familiarity that sometimes goes away. The loved one has some kind of behavior that just is not in sync with how they've always done it. And just little clues, you don't want to expect the but yeah. I think our gut is a great navigator and, and to trust it and how we approach 
in our questionings can determine whether the person's going to become defensive. I can tell you when my mother's friends came to me and said, there's just something off about your mom, I had been noticing things like she would call me three and four times to tell me the same thing, like she had, hadn't told me it before. And it was just odd, you know, and then one time she withdrew some money from a savings account that her name was on it, but it was mine. It had been mine since I was little. And I had money in there saving to give to my niece and, and I hadn't been in town, so I couldn't withdraw it. But when I went to go withdraw it, there was only $50 left. And when I looked to see who it was that had withdrawn that money, her name was on it. And when I asked her, she just had this blank stare, like mm. she had mm-hmm. no idea, you know, and I fluffed it off. And maybe it's just stress. Cause she kept saying it was, she was very stressed out because I would ask her, you know, why, if you needed money, you know, I can give you money, mom. And So just things that are, like you're saying, very out of the norm, I should have really started investigating then, but it was six months prior to her friend, one of them coming to me and saying, we're all worried about your mom. There's something just off. Mm -hmm. And you know, people in the early stages of dementia can cover it really well and things to look for is they redirect the conversation or they laugh it off. Mm-hmm. I don't know how often I see laughter. You ask a question and they'll go, oh, and then talk about something else. <laughs> and that's very clever. Yeah. <laughs> but if that happens, if they're not directly answering questions, it could be that they don't remember. Or, yeah. You know. And they don't want to say they don't remember. Right, right. So I want to ask this when you brought up living with your grandmother who came, why did you feel uncomfortable around her? I just remember being very impatient. In her mind, she always wanted to move south. Mm -hmm. And so her room had boxes in it all the time. Even though she was settled, she'd get a box and then she'd start putting stuff in it because she was going south. She couldn't say where or when or how, Mm -hmm. but she was moving south. Now I would know to get boxes for her (laughs) so that she could do that and then maybe unpack them after she took a nap and then she may not remember for a while. But at the time I thought, well, why is she moving south? And I just didn't get it. And actually now that I work primarily with dementia patients, there are adult children who are in that same space. I I was going to say, you know, absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. Why is mom acting this way? That makes no sense. And denial. They get angry because it's easy to get angry with family members. It's, you know, my brother and my stepdad, my stepdad's better. My brother's getting there, but they had the hardest time grasping the why. My niece and my nephew who were young when she was diagnosed, I would tell them, if you want grandma to be somewhere at your game or something, you've got to call her every 30 minutes and to get her there or go pick her up because they Mm. would get their feelings hurt. You know, Mm -hmm. they were like you at that age. They didn't understand why. And even though I kept telling them, look, grandma has no short term memory, but I told her and I told her to write it down. I get it. If you really want her there, you got to go get her or you got to call her every 30 minutes to get her there. Mm -hmm. Speed forward now, one's in college, the other one's about to be in college. They deal with her. They're okay with her repeating herself, but that is definitely, and my stepdad has just now stopped asking why, you know, Mm, mm -hmm, I feel mm -hmm. like the people closest, did you find in your research that the loved ones of the people with the dementia, did you find that they more so than others were in denial about them not being able to do everyday things? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were all across the spectrum. With this book, my the research focused on spouses. Okay. And so across that spectrum, there were the spouses who definitely were frustrated. They were impatient. They were resentful. This is not what they had signed up for. They were supposed to hit retirement and then travel or see the grandkids. And now they couldn't do that. Then there were spouses who were just so enamored and so in love that it was nothing to care for them. They would do everything for them. And it was so interesting to me because I thought, you know, there are are infinite number of types of caregivers because everyone has their own experience yes and they bring to it and the relationships between a parent and a child or between a husband and wife during the years that dementia was not present can have an impact on how they interact after dementia sets in that makes and sense. if there were struggles <laughs> that at the beginning you know if there was heaven forbid abuse or infidelity that can impact how you perceive your role as a caregiver when dementia sets in wow so there's all kinds and we're all in our own journeys that we're all taking separately and yet there's so many similarities and That makes a lot of sense now. (laughs) (laughs) I always tease and say that my brother is the favorite child, you know, because he can do no wrong. But it's harder for me to tell her something and her do it rather than like if it was the doctor or my brother or, you know, anybody else that's not related to her can tell her what to do except for me and my stepdad or my grandmother or somebody that she cared for. I feel like if she was the care of, you know, which she was, and since I was the youngest, I feel like even though I'm now 45 years old, she has a harder time (laughs) (laughs) right? with us giving her direction. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me now. Yeah. (laughs) What would you say that you realized about yourself doing this research and looking back on, say, the situation with your grandmother or your husband, for that matter? You know, that the keeping it a secret Hmm. was, and that's not with regards to, you know, as I shared earlier, I was married for almost 20 years to this brilliant kind man who is a chemistry professor who was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia 12 years into our marriage. Mm -hmm. And just as that was happening, I was entering healthcare ministry. I found myself going to the nursing home to work. And one day I came in and there was a gentleman and he would come and visit his wife every day. They'd been married 65 years. And one day she was sitting there holding hands with another man. And she said to him, this is my husband. And he said, oh, nice to meet you. And he walked into my office and broke down crying. Oh. And I was so sad for him. You know, just now... That was only just one symptom or one indication, but you know, these people would come into the nursing home to visit their loved one who 
had issues with behavior. They refused to shower. They could be combative. They were talking to themselves and they were paranoid. And those were all things that I, at the same time, was experiencing with my husband. Mm -hmm. And so that's what kind of got me really interested in the research. And so I went back to school and my research was on the experience of marriage for spouses of dementia patients. And that's where I encountered such a wide variety of caregivers. And that's where I learned that how the relationship was before dementia sets in often kind of shapes the caregiving experience. But I think that back to your original question, one thing I would tell myself back then, and I would tell caregivers now is, don't keep it a secret. I was so afraid. I didn't want my parents to worry about me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want my friends to think badly about my spouse. Mm. I thought if I hid it, that people, they would not judge him because mm-hmm. there's a stigma with mental illness. There's a stigma with dementia. People yeah. don't understand it. Just like people stare at a child with special needs, you know? Definitely a stigma. <laughs> But by keeping it a secret, I've also blocked myself out from all the support that I could have been receiving much earlier. So to hear that your mom's friends came to you, oh, that's so wonderful that they did that. Because a lot of times (laughs) they will talk amongst themselves about the person with dementia. Yeah. Oh, do you know what they did and da 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 and oh I wonder how Kimberly is handling all of this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that can go on for a long time and that's not helpful to anyone. Yeah. So to talk about the elephant in the room, um, hiding it. Yeah, it's huge. I agree with you. She had a hard time even after she was diagnosed being okay with people knowing. Obviously, I don't want strangers to know, but I do want our family and and her friends that are close to her to know so They don't take things personally or think that she does what she's doing out of any kind of malice. If she forgot to attend something or give them back something, it's just, it's hard because sometimes she doesn't want people to know that. And I'm like, mom, it's important. It's okay. So right. How can the listeners get a hold of you if they want to learn more about you and the book? Okay. Well, I have a website, elizabethshulman.com. That's easy. Yeah. Without the C, people like to put the C in the Shulman. (laughs) And then for more information on the book, it has its own website, sanctuaryinthemidst.com. Okay. And I have a Facebook page for Sanctuary in the Midst as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Elizabeth. I really appreciate you taking time to visit with me. And if you want to listen to other episodes, go to thatkimberly.com to choose where you can tune in, whether it's YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and now Amazon Alexa. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And until next week, remember, sharing is caring. And to the caregivers listening, in the words of Dottie Grandy, you have my undying love, gratitude, and admiration. And to those that have not had the conversation with their family about dementia, please start talking about it. Start talking about the what if. Thank you, Kimberly. It's been a pleasure. Mine. All mine.